Section 34 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 61 The Turn of the Tide, Part 1. The Liberal Ministry continued somehow to fall off in popularity. They made a great many enemies. This fact was for the most part rather to their credit than otherwise. They came into office, pledged to carry out certain reforms, and they did carry them out, regardless of the offence they gave to class privileges and vested interests. A great reforming administration must always count on making enemies, and enemies whose hostility will be subtle and enduring. The Prime Minister himself was personally too much absorbed in the zeal of his cause, not sometimes to run counter to the feelings, the prejudices, the sensitive jealousies of men less earnest and less self-forgetting. Mr. Gladstone was profoundly serious in his purposes of reform, and very serious men are seldom popular in a society like that of London. The long series of bold and vigorous reforms was undoubtedly causing the public to lose its breath. People were getting tired of going on, as an ordinary walker gets tired of trying to keep up with some man who is bent on walking as fast and as far as he possibly can without rest or interruption. The inevitable reaction was setting in. It must have come in any case. No popularity, no skill, no cunning in the management of men, no quality or endowment on the part of the Prime Minister could have wholly prevented that result. Mr. Gladstone was not cunning in the management of men. He would probably have despised himself for availing of such a craft had he possessed it. He showed his feelings too plainly. If men displeased him, he seldom took the trouble to conceal his displeasure. He was too often preoccupied, as the French phrase puts it, to think of petty courtesies and small social arts. It was murmured among his followers that he was dictatorial, and no doubt he was dictatorial, in the sense that he had strong purposes himself and was earnest in trying to press them upon other men. His very religious opinions served to interfere with his social popularity. He seemed to be a curious blending of the English high churchman and the Scottish Presbyterian. He displeased the ordinary English middle class by leaning too much to ritualism, and on the other hand he often offended the Roman Catholics by his impassioned diatribes against the Pope and the Church of Rome. One or two appointments made by or under the authority of Mr. Gladstone gave occasion to considerable controversy and to something like scandal. One of these was the appointment of the Attorney General Sir Robert Collier to a puny judgeship of the Court of Common Pleas, in order technically to qualify him for a seat on the bench of a new Court of Appeal. That is to say, to become one of the paid members of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. The statute required that every judge of the Court of Appeal should have been a judge of one of the ordinary courts, and Sir Robert Collier was passed through the Court of Common Pleas in order that he might have the technical qualification there was not the slightest suggestion of any improper motive on the part of Mr. Gladstone, or lack of legal or judicial fitness on the part of Sir Robert Collier. On the contrary, 
it was admitted that sir robert collier had helped the government out of a difficulty by taking an appointment which several judges had declined and which had not quite such a position as that which the traditions of his office entitled him to expect it seemed however as if there was something of a trick in the act which thus passed him through the one court in order to give him a technical qualification for the other a vote of censure on the government was moved in the house of lords and the universal impression was that it would be carried some of the opposition leaders did all they could to make it the means of injuring the government and even went the length of including in their complaints the fact that the lord chancellor had given an appointment as judge of a county court to the mr beales who was president of the reform league when the hyde park railings were thrown down the vote of censure was however rejected by eighty-nine against eighty-seven a similar attempt was made in the house of commons and was defeated only however by a majority of twenty-seven a small majority in the house where the strength of the government was supposed to lie another appointment which led to controversy was that of the rev w w harvey to the rectory of uelm the law required that the rector of uelm should be a member of the convocation of oxford and mr harvey who had been educated at cambridge was made a member of the oxford convocation by oxford not by mr gladstone in order to qualify him for the appointment in this instance too there was no question either as to the motives of the minister or the merits of the appointment but as in the former case there seemed to many persons something like a trick in the manner of obtaining the qualification each case gave a chance to mr gladstone's enemies which they were not slow to use he was accused of casuistry which to many englishmen seems a sort of crime and of jesuitry which to some englishmen seems the worst of crimes it was part of mr gladstone's curious fortune to be denounced by certain enemies as a roman catholic in disguise at the very time when he was estranging and offending some of his most earnest catholic supporters by the energy of his attacks upon the political influence of their church there can be no doubt that although in neither house of parliament could any expression of censure be obtained the colliery explosion as it was called and the u elm scandal gave a downward push to the declining popularity of mr gladstone's administration the liquor interest too was soon in arms against him the united kingdom alliance for the suppression of the liquor traffic had of late years been growing so strong as to become a positive influence in politics its object was to bring about the adoption of legislation which should leave it in the power of a two-thirds majority in each locality to stop altogether if it were so thought fit the public sale of intoxicating drinks the parliamentary leader of the agitation was sir wilfrid lawson a man of position of great energy and of thorough earnestness sir wilfrid lawson was not however merely energetic and earnest he had a peculiarly effective style of speaking curiously unlike that which might be expected from the advocate of an austere and somewhat fanatical sort of legislation he was a humorist of a fresh and vigorous order and he always took care to amuse his listeners and never allow his speeches to bore them the alliance was always urging on the government and public opinion against the drink traffic and it became clear that something must be done to regulate the trade 
mr bruce the home secretary brought a bill which the alliance condemned as feebleness and which the publicans resented as oppression the bill increased the penalties for drunkenness and shortened the hours during which public houses might be kept open on sundays and on weekdays as well the effect of the passing of this measure was to throw the publicans into open hostility to the government the publicans had an old grudge against mr gladstone himself in former days he had been guilty of passing a measure which allowed the light wines of france to be sold in bottles by the grocers and drunk in pastry-cook shops and refreshment houses and the publicans highly disapproved of such innovations on the traditional ways of the british constitution some of their advocates indeed had denounced with a generous ardour the policy which would promote intemperance by allowing any one but a public housekeeper to sell a glass of wine the debaucheries of the pastry-cook shops were described in language that recalled the days of colonel sibthorpe's prognostication as to the corrupting influence of french wines and french morals mr bruce's licensing act was a new wrong charged at the door of mr gladstone gin lane and beer street rose in rebellion against him the publicans were a numerous body they were well organized the network of their trade and their associations spread all over the kingdom the hostile feelings of some were perhaps not unnaturally embittered by the fact that many speakers and writers treated all publicans alike made no distinction between the reputable and the disreputable and involved in a common condemnation honest mine host of the garter and roguish boniface of the bow stratagem it was well known that a large proportion of the publicans carried on a respectable trade and were losers rather than gainers by drunkenness yet in many instances these men found themselves classed with the owners of the most disreputable gin palaces with persons who flourished on the viciousness and degradation of their fellow-creatures the natural result of indiscriminate attack was to cause an indiscriminate alliance for the purposes of defence these were difficulties thickening across the path of mr gladstone's government all the time too a sullen suspicion prevailed among many classes that there had been a lowering of the national pride many men regarded the reopening of the treaty of paris as a triumph for russia at the expense of england and the washington treaty as a submission of this country to the arrogance of the united states no one undertook to say that there was anything the government could have done other than what they did but the world must have changed indeed when men will cease to associate a government with the untoward events that occur during its time or to hold the minister who has to make the apology responsible for the humiliation which a moralist would see in the original fault and not in the atonement the establishment of a republic in france could not be without its influence on english politics a certain amount of more or less vague republican sentiment is always afloat on the surface of english radicalism for some time before the founding of the french republic this vague sentiment had been undergoing a crystallizing and strengthening process under the influence of two causes the success of the north in america and the gradual degradation of the french empire under napoleon the third de tocqueville had observed long before that the great doubt he felt as to the stability of the american republic was on the question whether it could stand the stress of a great war 
now it had stood the stress of a great war and had come out all the stronger for the trial imperial france or rather the empire imposed on france had come for a moment into peril of collision with the american republic and had gone down before it without even making an effort to maintain its arrogant attitude facts like these naturally produced a distinct impression upon certain classes in england the establishment of the french republic now came as a climax we have already spoken of the great meetings which were held in london and in most of the english cities to express sympathy with the struggling republic and at some of these meetings a good deal of very outspoken republicanism made itself heard there could be no doubt that a considerable proportion of the working men in the cities were republicans in sentiment english writers who were not by any means of the sentimental school but on the contrary were somewhat hard and cold in their dogmatism began to publish articles in advanced reviews and magazines distinctly pointing out the logical superiority of the republican theory men were already discussing the possibility of a declared republican party being formed both in and out of parliament not indeed a party clamouring for the instant pulling down of the monarchy no one thought of that but a party which would avow itself republican in principle and acknowledge that its object was to bring about such a change in public sentiment as might prepare the way for a republic in the time to come mr frederick harrison a writer of ability and reputation declared in one of the reviews that the adoption of the republican form of government by the english people at some time or other was as certain as the rising of to-morrow's sun of course there have always been republican sentiments among certain classes of englishmen and any breath of change on the continent is sure to fan them into a little flame that flickers for a while this time however many people thought that the sentiment was really going to convert itself into a principle and that the principle might see itself represented by a political party france which had given the impulse gave also the shock that brought reaction the wild theories the monstrous excesses the preposterous theatricism of the paris commune had a very chilling effect on the ardour of english republicans the movement in england had however one or two curious episodes before it sank into quiescence in march eighteen seventy two sir charles dilke brought on a motion in the house of commons for inquiring into the manner in which the income and allowances of the crown are expended sir charles dilke had been for some months of the preceding autumn the best abused man in great britain his name appeared over and over again in the daily papers he monopolized for weeks the first leading article in every journal the comic papers caricatured citizen dilke every week in the theatrical burlesques his name was the signal for all manner of drolleries and buffooneries the telegraph wires carried his doings and speeches everywhere american correspondents interviewed him and pictured him as the future president of england he went round the towns of the north of england delivering a lecture on the expenses of royalty and his progress was marked by more or less serious riots everywhere life was sacrificed in more than one of these tumults a paris journal described his progress as a sort of civil war the working men of london and of the north held great meetings to express their approval of his principles and conduct 
and to pass resolutions in support of the young baronet who had dared to condemn the expenses of royalty and to avow himself a republican many people really thought that for good or ill the vague fluent incoherent movement toward republicanism in england had found its leader at last that the hour had come and the man to increase and perplex the excitement the prince of wales fell ill and if sir charles dilke had personally caused his illness he could not have been more bitterly denounced by some speakers and writers he was represented as a monster of disloyalty who had chosen to assail the queen against whom it is only fair to say he had never uttered a disparaging word while her eldest son lay struggling with death the prince of wales given over by all the doctors recovered and in the outburst of public gladness and loyalty that followed his restoration to health sir charles dilke was almost forgotten but he had been challenged to repeat in the house of commons the statements that he had made in the country he answered the challenge by bringing forward the motion to inquire into the manner in which the income and allowances of the crown were spent there was unmistakable courage in the cool steady way in which he rose to propose his motion he faced his house full of antagonists with dogged calmness it is a hard trial to the nerves to face such an audience sir charles dilke knew that every one in that house save three or four alone were bitterly opposed to him he knew that the most overpowering eloquence was to pour out on him the moment he had finished his speech but neither then nor after did he show the slightest sign of quailing his speech was well got up as to the facts well arranged and evidently well committed to memory but it was not eloquent the house began to grow apathetic before sir charles dilke had nearly finished his address the warmth of mr gladstone's reply was almost startling by sheer force of contrast to sir c dilke's quiet dry and laboured style no one expected that mr gladstone would be so passionately merciless as he proved to be his vehemence forcing the house into hot temper again was one cause at least of the extraordinary tumult that arose when sir c dilke's friend and ally mr oberon herbert rose to speak and declared himself also a republican this was the signal for as extraordinary a scene as the house of commons has ever exhibited the tumult became so great that if it had taken place at any public meeting it would have been called a riot and would have required the interference of the police some hundreds of strong excited furious men were shouting and yelling with the object of interrupting the speech and drowning the voice of one man the speaker of the house of commons is usually an omnipotent authority seldom indeed does any one presume to question his decision or to utter a word when he enjoins silence one of the peculiarities of the house of commons which all strangers admire is the respect and deference it usually shows to the president whom it has itself chosen but on this occasion the speaker was literally powerless what care these roarers for the name of king asks the boatswain in the tempest as he points to the furious waves what cared the roarers in the house of commons for the name of speaker there was no authority which could overawe them they were all men of education and position university men younger sons of peers great landowners officers in crack cavalry regiments 
the very elite, most of them, of the English aristocracy. But they became for the moment a merely furious mob. They roared, hissed, gesticulated with the fury of a sixpenny gallery disappointed in some boxing night performance. The shrill cock-crow unheard in the House of Commons for a whole generation shrieked once more in the ears of the bewildered officials. Probably nobody now reads Samuel Warren's once popular novel, Ten Thousand a Year, but those who did read it long ago may remember that when Mr. Tittlebat Titmouse got into Parliament, his one only contribution to debate was his admirable and distracting imitation of the crowing of a cock. Everyone supposed that Titmouse and his ways were dead and gone, but it would positively seem that some of his kith and kin were alive and in good voice that night in the House of Commons. The debate was chiefly remarkable for the fact that it noted the exact level to which the Republican sentiment had arisen in English political society. Three members of the House of Commons acknowledged in more or less qualified terms their theoretical preference for the Republican form of government. These were Sir C. Dilk, Mr. Oberon Herbert, and Professor Fawcett. There were doubtless some other men in the House who sympathized with Republican principles, but who well convinced that the monarchy had hitherto suited England, and was not likely to be soon changed, gave themselves no more trouble about the matter than if it were some purely speculative question. Such men could not be called Republicans. The name could only be given to the few who frankly declared that they would prefer to see England a republic, and even to these it must be given only in a qualified sense. Not one of them was anxious to see any sudden change. Not one of them was even inclined to set on foot any agitation for the propagation of Republican principles. The excesses of the Commune and the illness of the Prince of Wales were combining influences too strong for theory to contend against. End of section 34